Man, I feel like it's a music box. I should have twirled on that last one. Um, hey, thanks to Kevin for that, um, and I appreciate the elders. And like Brandon said, some of you may not even know what that is. Right? We have a leadership board. We have a pastoral team who, uh, you know, you guys see a bunch. But then above us, and as a means of accountability, we have a leadership, spiritual leadership board we call elders. Uh, and just really appreciate the way that this past COVID environment, they've, they've, just really engaged with shepherding a lot of you. And some of you very likely have had a call from them or contact with them, but we've worked really hard to, to, we divided up the list of everybody we have in the Calvary membership very early on COVID. And the elders and pastors have been praying over that list. And then for folks who haven't come back yet, who may be you know, visiting online, staying online, the, we've reached out to them. And so just appreciate the elders' role and caring for you guys and uh, partnering with the pastoral staff. And appreciate you being here this morning and those folks who are online and look forward to what had, God has in his word. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to jump into it. Uh, Father, <clears throat> this morning I'm grateful that we can come again. You are sovereign in the timing in which you have us address subjects and even text in scripture. And this morning, Father, I'm grateful and just on behalf of the people here who you've just really blessed this past week and month um, with gracious gifts from you, whether that be health or just good times or memories. Thank you, Father, for demonstrating your love that way. And for people this morning, Father, who they're just going through some things, um, I pray for them. And I ask you to make yourself real to them. We know you're present there, God, but sometimes when we're in difficulties, uh, you can seem silent, even though you're actively working, and it is a measure of grace when you reveal, in a tangible way, just your presence with encouragement. And so I pray for people who this morning, it's a tough season, that you will help provide some encouragement to them. Father, we come, and we come expectantly, knowing that your word has impact and truth for today. And so I pray as we open up these words, that your Holy Spirit will work based on the situation we are, whether we're in this room or online or clicking on later the week, Father, it's your work. Thank you that you are the ultimate shepherd of this church and that you care deeply for this church and we can trust you with everything we're facing. Uh, you're good, you're kind, you are all-powerful, you are loving, you are our Father. And we're thankful that we can pause and can acknowledge that corporately. Help us now. May Jesus be honored and glorified, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Well, like uh, those guys said, we're two weeks into our Christmas series, and this Christmas we're doing this series called Hope Because, and we're spending a few weeks thinking about how in the original Christmas story and the people and the moments and the events that happened in that story, what were ways that have provided hope to people who were part of that. And then we're thinking about this second additional question, how can what provided hope to them provide hope to us today, to you and to me and to people we know? What is hope we can glean from that? And I shared this in the first service and I'll share it now. It's always um, 
So whenever one gets up here, whether that's me or Dan or Chris or anybody who's teaching the text that day, um, we, we come up here based on where we all are as a church. And nobody wants to see the guy coming up here every week be like Debbie Downer, right? The, 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 uh, nobody wants to just talk about discouraging and hard things all the time. And so I don't have a desire to do that, right? But, but on the same side, the reality is that for a lot of maybe you who are sitting on the blue chairs or people who are tuning in or can't turn in, these past few weeks have just been a tough week for a lot of people who call Calvary Church home or, or even those who are newer here. Some of our people... Um, as we think about hope, right, as we think about this sermon series of hope, some of our people have been diagnosed with COVID in this next wave, and man, there is anxiety and worry and fear about what that could impact them. Some of our people who have been here for, for week after week after week are fighting cancer and fighting some really, really hard health issues. Some of our people this past week or two have buried loved ones. We know because you have the honesty and the courage to tell us that we know some of you are fighting some depression and some discouragement. A lot of us, man, are in a season where we may need hope, right? Or a lot of us in our season where we might know people who need hope. And it's, it, we're not just picking a word off our Christmas card to talk about. We're here talking about something that you guys may be experiencing. And so we're spending a few weeks thinking about how did these folks have hope? How can we have hope? And so last week we saw we can have hope because God keeps his promises. And today we're going to dig a little deeper. We saw that God keeps his promises and Dan unpacked all these promises in the Old Testament that came true and came to fruition in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. And so this week we're going to dig a little deeper into the person of Jesus. We're going to look at, as we think about why can we have hope today, how could we maybe offer hope to other people, uh, we're going to look at Jesus's family tree, okay? We're going to look at his genealogy. Now, have you ever heard of Ancestry.com? Anybody ever heard of that gig? Well, they're running Christmas specials if you're curious about it. Uh, Here's what Ancestry.com does. Instead of shoving a Q-tip up your nose to check for COVID, I guess you shove a Q-tip in your own mouth and swab it. I don't do it because I don't want, like, the CIA to have my DNA. I've seen too many James Bond movies. But if you're interested in all that stuff, you can swab your mouth, you put it in an envelope, you send it away somewhere for $19.99, and... They will sum back to you this, this family tree, right, this genealogy with all your relatives, whether there were pirates in your past or presidents or who were the pilgrims that came over that you're related to, this family tree you can get today. Well, thousands of years before there was Ancestry.com, there was a guy named Matthew who recorded Jesus's family tree. They recorded Jesus's genealogy. And this morning we're going to look at that and we're going to think about two reasons for the genealogy. Like why is this even here? Maybe if you've ever opened up the book of Matthew to read the Christmas story, you're trying to get to the shepherds and the wise men, but you first get to this thing in Matthew and there's all these names and you're like, why did they waste space putting all these names? Well, if you've ever wondered that, we're going to talk about two reasons why the genealogy is here and then we're going to kind of pull... Uh, three reasons for hope, three lessons that we can see from some of the names here. So I did this in the first service and we only went like six minutes long. And by now you guys are used to wearing masks. So I am going to read the entire genealogy contained in this book. Don't doze off. It's thrilling. Okay, here we go, right? If you got your uh, Bible, if you got a device, if you got a tablet, whatever, your iPhone, open it up to Matthew chapter 1, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. 
And here's how it goes. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Aminabadad. Right about now I wonder why I've decided to read the whole genealogy, but we're in it. And Aminabadad the father of Nashan, and Nashan the father of Salmon, Salmon, Salmon. I'm going to say Salmon. I know it's not the Greek way to say it, I can read, so whatever, but... I'm saying salmon, and right now I want a lox and some bagels, but we don't have that. We have salmon, who was the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon, the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asaph, and Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah was the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz was the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiad, and Abiad the father of Elohim, and Elohim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Matham, and Matham the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Now... Well, I mean, come on, Kevin Courtney gets a clap. I should get a clap for that amazing. There you go. Uh, now, probably right now, some of you halfway through that, or if you've ever come to it in the past, and I myself have even done this, we've treated the genealogy the way that probably my kids this Christmas are going to treat some directions that they may get in any of their presents, right? When I was coming up as a kid, I would get presents, and you'd have to build things, you have to put batteries and things, or you'd do things. And I, maybe because I was a legalistic rule follower, I would open up the box, I would unfold that little thing of instructions, <clears throat> and I would read how you put it together, or where the battery goes, or how you play with it. What I've realized in my own family is like, bro, that don't even happen, right? Like, they open up that box, and they come to the directions, and it's like, that's the first thing in the fireplace to keep the fire going, right? And you're like, no, you've got to read the directions. It's important. And they're like, I don't even know why those are here. I'll just figure out. Maybe some of you, when you've come to this passage of Scripture, you've kind of treated it like the directions in a present, where you're like, you know what, I'm not, I don't, okay, I'm just going to move on to the other stuff. Like, just get me to the angels, right? I don't need to read this genealogy. But to the original people to whom the book of Matthew was written, they would not have treated this book the way that we treat instructions in presence sometimes. In fact, to the original group of people to whom this, this book was written, this may have been the most important part of the Christmas story to them. <clears throat> they, they would have, like, lingered here and poured here. And let me tell you why. Each of the different Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, under the inspiration of Scripture, God caused those writers to kind of write that book to a different audience. There was a different people group in mind to whom that Gospel was written. And so Mark was written to the Romans. And Mark was structured in such a way that he knew the Roman culture, he knew the Roman values, and so when he was telling realities about Jesus, he packaged and framed it in a way that the Romans could resonate with it. Luke was written to the Greeks. 
The Greeks had certain things that were important in their worldview and their culture. And so Luke frames the way he presents Jesus through God's inspiration to the Greeks in a way that they'll relate to it and they'll track with it. John was written to everybody. And Matthew, his particular audience was the Jewish people. Jewish people who were meshed in the Old Testament and he knew what Jewish people thought. He, he was Jewish. He knew it was important to them. And so when he framed the book of Matthew under God's inspiration, he was doing it with such a way that the values that were important to the Jews in their culture would come out here. And so there's lots of stuff about Jesus as the Messiah and the kingdom. And to the Jewish people, family trees and lineages were a huge part of their culture. If a young Jewish guy and a young Jewish girl bought a piece of land and they got married and they wanted to raise some sheep and build a fence. And when they go to purchase that land, back in the day, they didn't run a credit report. What they would run were the people's genealogies. Because your family tree for certain pieces of land and your lineage determined what you could or couldn't purchase. If you were applying for certain jobs, They wouldn't run a drug test or they wouldn't run your references. They'd run your family tree and your lineage because if you wanted to work in certain careers in the Jewish culture, you had to have a certain lineage. And when the Jewish people, like Dan talked about last week, were looking forward to this guy who was going to come as a Messiah, there were certain realities about the Messiah, certain things that had to be part of his family tree. Part of what had to be in the Messiah's family tree is he had to be a Jew and he had to be related to David. And so what Matthew is doing is saying, look, I'm going to tell you a whole bunch of things about this Jesus guy and what he did. And what the Jewish people would know is if somebody comes claiming to be the Messiah, but he's not a Jew and he's not related to David, man, then you don't even have to pay attention. And what Matthew front ends in the very beginning of the genealogy before he gets to any stories is this. I'm going to tell you a bunch of stories about this guy, but let me tell you something. He's got the credentials to actually be who he says he is. He front ends at the very first word, the book of the genealogy, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The fact that Jesus was related to Abraham shows that he was a Jew. And then what David said is not only was he a Jew, but he is related to David. Jewish people, he's saying, what Matthew's trying to do is shore up and firm up that Jesus really was who he claimed to be. Which means for them and for us that Jesus can be trusted. Jesus can be trusted. The first reason for this genealogy, if you've ever wondered why it's there, is to prove, to validate to the Jewish people that to validate Jesus as the Messiah and to show to them that this Jesus, he is who he says he is. And so he can be trusted. And the same truth for you and for me this morning is that, you know what? Whatever you're facing, whatever you're going through, Jesus is who he says he was. And because he is who he says he was this morning, the things he has said to you and the things he has said to me, we can trust him. He can be trusted. What's the second reason for this genealogy? First one is to validate Jesus the Messiah. But Matthew is is purposefully and strategically 
inserting certain names in the genealogy. Interestingly, in this genealogy, I think there's four or five inclusions of women. Including women in a Jewish genealogy was, uh, I'm not going to say it never happens, but it rarely, 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 rarely ever happened. It wasn't part of how they did genealogies. And the very fact that Matthew's including women's names in here, it's like a big yellow highlighter. It's a Sharpie pen. He's trying to get their attention saying, look, I'm doing something different here. I want you to pay attention to the names of these people in the genealogy. And we heard all of those names, and maybe you've heard of some of them. Some of the people, that's the only time they're ever mentioned in the Bible. Others of the people are woven throughout the Old Testament. And even if you don't necessarily know their stories, you know who would have known the stories? The people who heard their names for the first time. If I said to you today, hey, here's a list of our pastoral team for next year. Well, I better not say that, (laughs) right? Because I don't want... If I gave you a list of people's names and I said, hey, here's some names. Bill Clinton. Miley Cyrus, Jeffrey Epstein, right? Donald Trump. If I named a bunch of people's names, you would know their stories. You would instantly have an association with things they did well and things they didn't well and moments of brokenness. And when the Jewish people would have heard most of these names, they would have known the stories of those people. And most of the stories of those people included failure and included brokenness. And included moments of life that didn't seem to make much sense and they didn't know which way was up or where they were going. And yet, through each of those stories, God worked to redeem it, to bring about the person of Jesus. The list contains, if you look in verse 1, right? We hear the son of David. Later on in verse 6, we hear the wife of Uriah, David, right? We, we don't have time to go through all of them. That would be, we could do that till next Christmas. So I'm not going to keep you in a mask that long. But, but here's some highlights in case these names don't resonate or don't ring a bell with you. And like Dan said, in January, probably January 10th, We're kicking off a series where we're going to spend a lot of time going through the Old Testament story by story. What's it about? Why is it there? So you're going to hear some of these names again. But David, man, a man after God's own heart. That's how David's described. But you know what the reality is about David? He also committed adultery and he murdered his mistress's husband. Like, that's breaking news on Twitter, right? We hear about his mistress, the wife of Uriah. In verse 6, you can read that story in Samuel, in 2 Samuel 12. Genesis 27, I'm going to give you some scriptures this week if, if you're looking for something to read. Genesis 27, you can read the story of the guy who's mentioned in verse 2, Jacob. Jacob is one of the pillars of faith in the Old Testament, but you know what else is true about Jacob? Man, old boy was a liar. Dude was a con man. Part of Jesus' family tree. Rahab, verse 5 was a prostitute. And then in verse 3, we hear about Tamar, and later on we read about, in the same verse we hear about Judah. I'm not going to unpack the story of Tamar and Judah, but it's in Genesis 38, and it's raw. And all these people were broken people who'd made some great choices and some bad choices through whom God worked. And here's the second reason for the genealogy this morning to show what God has done and what the Messiah will do. The genealogy and the name set up these stories of what God has done and what the Messiah will do, which is this. He works through imperfect people to redeem a broken 
world. The, the names there, right, they show that Jesus didn't come from perfect people. But they remind us. But you know what? Jesus came to save imperfect people. He didn't come from perfect people. He didn't come for perfect people. He came to rescue and redeem imperfect people, just like the crazy lot of his relatives who were contained in his family tree. And it also shows that every single one of those people and every single one of their stories and every one of their successes and every one of their failures was leveraged by God as part of his story of redemption. What does that have to do with us today? Well, for those of you this morning who are experiencing brokenness, right? this is a list of broken people. For those of you this morning who are experiencing brokenness, the way that God worked in these people's story and the way that God worked through these people's story is an encouragement to you that God can work to fix it and God can work to heal it. Whatever you're facing, whatever you at home are facing, no matter how hard, no matter how challenging, what will God do? I don't know. But I know what God can do. And God can work to fix it. And God can work to heal it. Because he's a God who redeems broken things through broken people. Maybe this morning your story is not one of brokenness in this moment, but you know what? Maybe your neighbor, maybe a friend, a coworker, somebody you know at Calvary, they're just going through a hard time. And I'd encourage you, if you call Calvary Church your church home, man, you can call the office this week and, or email us and sign up for our prayer list. We send out a list weekly of what people are going through at the church. You may not know everybody, but you may know somebody. Some of the requests, yeah, every week they are the same because people's challenges haven't changed, but every week there are new requests. It's a way for you to engage and to try to care for and to know about what's happening here. But maybe you don't even, it doesn't even have to be people who are on the prayer list, but maybe you know people. And the question for you this morning is, what if God wants to use you in their lives to be the hands and feet of Jesus, to do what Jesus did, which is try to bring comfort and hope and redeem and work through imperfect people. What if he has a way he wants to use you to bring comfort, to bring encouragement, to bring hope to someone you know who is navigating some brokenness? If you want to know why the genealogy is there, it's there to to prove who Jesus is, to validate his claim to Messiah, And it's there to show what God has done and what Jesus will do, which is to work through imperfect people to redeem a broken world. So let's go ahead and uh, pull out some names of the genealogy, and let's think about what lessons can we learn from these guys. Let's pull out some names, learn some lessons, and and let's just look at the first, again, we could do this all day, we won't. Let's just look at one of the names in the first part, where it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham. Let's think about Abraham. Again, we're going to hit Abraham a bunch in our upcoming series, but Genesis 12 begins the story of Abraham. You can read it later this week. Here's the, here's the cliff note verse, spark notes. 
to show how hip and trendy I am. Here's the spark note version. Okay, ready? Abraham is this kind of unknown guy in Genesis 12. He's probably worshiping foreign gods. He doesn't yet have a relationship with God. God comes to Abraham and he says, Abraham, I want to do something in you and through you. And, 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 but here's the deal, right? Abraham was wealthy. Abraham was settled. Abraham had built up a reputation in the town that he lived. And God came to Abraham and said, hey, that's all great, Abraham, but you know what? I want you to go. I want you to get up. I want you to pack up everything, and I want you to go to the land that I will tell you. God didn't tell him yet the land. God just said, I'm not going to tell you all the details. I'm not going to tell you how it ends. I'm not going to tell you what happens. This is what I'm going to tell you to do. Trust me and obey me and go. And you know what Abraham did? And in faith with a God that he was starting to have this relationship that it hadn't been part of his past, this God called him to do something, Abraham showed great faith and left it all behind in a pursuit of God. And through Abraham's faith, God caused him to become the head of the Jewish people. Every Jewish person descends from Abraham, and God used Abraham to have that in part because of Abraham's faith. And what we see from that is this, that God often works when our faith intersects with his faithfulness. Does God need our faith in order to work? No. God can do whatever he wants. But many times in the story, many times in the genealogy, it's a story of people who in different moments had great faith, and in that moment of faith, it intersected with God's faithfulness. And man, God did some incredible, incredible things at that intersection. So, so <clears throat> here's a takeaway for maybe you this morning. When our faith intersects with the faithfulness of God, it's this moment when God often and can do great things. Does he need our faith? No, but oftentimes when those two things meet, he works in great ways. Here's the challenge and takeaway for some of you this morning. Don't forget that God is faithful. Don't forget this morning that God is faithful. Every time I, <clears throat> not every time, because I don't, vast majority of times, 99% of the time, 99.9% of the time, man, I, I spend some time with every sermon thinking about, okay, how does that impact me? As the guy who's going to give it, what is this going to do in my heart first? What is it going to do in in my life first, and it's a great reminder for me not to forget and to remember that God is faithful. Because here's why, and I'm probably, I will make every effort not to say this next week, but I'm going to say it this week, and I've said it a lot, and I apologize, but it's true. This has been a really, really crazy year. And it's been a really crazy year um, for me as a pastor, and I think all of our pastors and elders at different times will echo these same things. I'm just a guy who's echoing this here. Because we, we care about you guys. We love the people of our church. And we're in this job to try to help you and walk with you, and that is a, a challenge when we can't be with you. And when there's people who are in the room, we, we, we can interact with you and care for you. But we know, right? We know that a bunch of people are watching this today. Some will not come back until we have to get to take our masks off. Other will not come back until everybody's vaccinated. And the challenge is we yearn to care for all of you. 
And it, it's hard to sometimes figure out how to do it and how to do it well. And I assure you, we're trying. I'm trying. Uh, is that, am I doing it perfectly? What other God? No, but, but our heart is to care. And I think the challenge is there's things that are out there to try to do that, that in our own power we can't do. We can't. We, you heard Kevin talk. There's nothing we can do. It's up to God to raise the money we need to continue the ministry here. And, and he's a faithful God, and, and he'll do it. And, and I think sometimes as we think, see, and it's not the time at Calvary to launch a brand new vision. And so what we did a month or so ago, and we've used these words throughout the COVID situation, but here's what your pastoral team is focused about for doing for you guys. We're not going to roll out some brand new vision with bumper stickers right now, okay? But this is our vision for this moment. We want to connect with you. We want to engage you. And we want to point you to Jesus. We want to connect with you. We want to engage you. And we want to point you to Jesus. But the ability to do that well is beyond us. And we need God to help us do that. We need the Holy Spirit to help us do that. And I think sometimes in my own story, what causes me stress is probably what causes you stress. That there's something we want to do, and we take the authority and the responsibility to try to do it ourselves, but ultimately it's beyond our own power to do. And so we're chasing the wind, trying to make something happen that is up to God to make happen that we can't do, and it causes stress and it causes discouragement. And in those moments, what's important for me to remember and what's important for you to remember is, you know what? God is faithful. God is faithful. And he's in charge. So trust him. And the second thing is this, you know, Abraham, we saw him, had great faith. Don't think that your faith is wasted or futile. Even if he's not working right now, how you want, when you want, as you want, man, don't. your faith isn't wasted and your faith isn't futile. Abraham, the story teaches another lesson. Verses 1 through 10, oh boy, was like faithful man of the year. Woo, right? I mentioned a lot of times. But about 10 through 20, the wheels fall off in Abraham's life. You, you can read the story when you go home. It's great reading if you're going to watch your favorite football team lose, right? But, but here's the story of what happens, right? So God, Abraham steps out to follow God. Abraham comes to this moment where he starts to encounter this obstacle. And all of a sudden, this worry creeps in, this fear creeps in, this anxiety creeps in. And he sees this moment in which he's in, and he starts running all these possibilities about what could happen. And he's walking towards that moment, and God doesn't seem to be doing anything to take care of him. So you know what Abraham does? Abraham tries to grab control of the wheel. He tries to take the matter into his own hands. And Abraham does that through deceit and through lying to try to control it. And the whole thing ends up blowing up in his face. And maybe that's something that you've done in your story. Maybe you've been walking a certain path and God has brought you to a certain moment. And things aren't falling into place the way you want. And you're like, why this? Why that? Well, that's good. And so you're like, Hey, I don't know what God's doing. Maybe he's doing his Christmas list, but he sure doesn't seem to be helping me. So the only way I'm going to get through this moment is if I take control. And maybe you've tried to take control of a moment or a situation because you thought God was asleep at the wheel and you've tried to do it in your own power and it's ended up blowing up in your face. Abraham did. And he blew it big time. But you know what? God didn't give up on him. 
God still worked through him. In fact, he's the second name listed as the relative of Jesus. Here's the second lesson this morning, right? The first lesson is this, that God often works when our faith intersects with his faithfulness. And the second lesson is this, God works through people of faith even when their faith is sometimes weak. See, what God does in our lives does not ultimately depend upon the strength of our faith. It doesn't. What God ultimately does depends on the strength of his faithfulness, which will never change and will never let you go. That should give us hope. And then there's one last lesson. We're going to go a little long, but not super long. I'm helping you build up your lungs for swimming, right? You're going to become swimmers with listening to four more minutes of this, five more minutes with your sermon and your mask on. There's one final lesson about what God does in broken moments and in broken people who are going through broken things. And I love one of the phrases Dan used last week. He talked about, okay, for the Jewish people back then, their landscape had changed. And I think that's a great line because one of these people we're going to look to, man, the landscape that they thought they were on a path, the landscape, the ground underneath them fell apart. And what does God do in those moments when we don't know what he's doing? Well, in order to understand that, we, we need to look at a person mentioned in verse 5. Here's who we see in verse Five, back to my favorite person, Salmon, right? Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. That phrase we can glance past, but if we glance past it, we miss this huge reality about what God does things if we miss the story of Ruth. And so I'm going to go 40,000 miles an hour, 40,000 feet through the story of Ruth for a minute to, to drill in on that story. And I want you to listen to all the twists and the turns in her life and what God does. The story starts off with Ruth as a young lady who's in the country of Moab. And and we read in Ruth chapter 1, it says this, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And a man of Bethlehem, Bethlehem, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Ruth is living in Moab. Jewish family living in, in, in Jerusalem has got two boys of marrying age. There's a famine. There's a national crisis, right? There's this global, pan, not pandemic, but issue. So old boy's like, okay, I got to get out of here. I got to go. So he takes his family to where Ruth is. Ruth, this young lady, ends up meeting one of these Jewish boys from Bethlehem, and they get married. We see that in verse 4. These, meaning the two boys, took Moabite wives. The name of one was Orpah, not Oprah, and the name of the other was Ruth. They lived there about 10 years. And then what happens is in verse 4, those boys who got married, both of those boys, it tells us, died. So now, husband's dead of the mom. All the husbands are dead. And so Ruth, who was married about 10 years, is now a widow, lost her husband. Her mother-in-law is now a widow. And so the mother-in-law is like, okay, I got to go back to my home. I got to go back to Bethlehem. We see that in verse 6. Then she, Ruth's mother-in-law, arose with her daughters-in-law, including Ruth, to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. She hears like, okay, we're out of food here in, in, in Moab. We got to go back to Bethlehem. So Ruth, widow, 
leaves her hometown, leaves her background, leaves everything with her mother-in-law's widow, and they go back to the mother-in-law's hometown. And we see when they got there. It tells us in verse 22, So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. And then the narrator tells us what happened in that point, and he starts to use these little words to make us see that what seems like a coincidence, it ain't no coincidence. Ruth and her mom are hungry. And the custom in that day is it was if you were poor, you could go into some fields to get some food. And so we see what happens. It tells us what Ruth chooses to do. Verse 2, verse 3, it says this. So she, Ruth, set out, and she went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was the clan of Elimelech. I love it. The narrator says, she just happened. And then he continues and says this. Right? And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Ruth just happened to be in the field that belonged to her future husband. And in that moment, behold, he just happens to show up. And they end up getting married. And they end up having some kids. And they end up being the relatives of Jesus. You can imagine in Ruth's story, she may have asked some questions at different moments. Why is there a famine? Well, why did my husband die after only 10 years? Why do I have to pack up everything in the town and the place where my husband and I started to make a life where I'm from and go back to this Bethlehem place with my mother-in-law? Why is there a famine here? Right? Why am I the only one left? You can imagine all sorts of questions that she asked about the circumstances of her life that didn't seem to make sense or fit together well. And maybe this morning you're asking very similar questions. Maybe there's circumstances in your life that don't seem to fit or altogether make sense. And you have a lot of whys. Well, like he tends to do in this story, God doesn't answer all the whys, but you know what we do see? That in every circumstance and in the timing of everything, God was at work. In every circumstance and in the timing of every circumstance, God was sovereignly at work. Did God cause it all to happen? I don't know. Did God allow it to happen? He did. Did God work through it? Yes. Right? It was through the famine that Ruth met her mother-in-law. Right, It was through the husband's death that it brought her back to Bethlehem. It was from coming back to Bethlehem that she met Boaz, who would eventually become her second husband, and they'd become part of Jesus' family tree. And it wasn't just the circumstances, it was the timing. The famine just so happened to hit at a moment that the first husband or Ruth were of a marrying age. The husband died just so happened at the moment when they came back. It was the barley harvest. The day that Ruth decided to go into the field, she just so happened to show up in Boaz's field. And it just so happened to be the moment that Boaz just so happened to show up. And every aspect of the timing was orchestrated by God to cause two people to meet that day in a field in Bethlehem so that centuries later, a baby would be born 
in a stable outside of a field in Bethlehem who would be related to these two people and who would end up changing the world. Through every circumstance, through every moment of timing, two people, God worked so that two people would meet in a field in Bethlehem in his sovereignty so that in his sovereign control of everything, those two people would be part of the story of the baby who would be born in Bethlehem, who would change everything. And it wasn't a coincidence, and it wasn't an accident. It was God sovereignly working through every moment when the landscape crumbled apart underneath Ruth. God is in control. The genealogy of Jesus shows that Jesus is who he says he is. He can be trusted. The genealogy of Jesus shows that God works to redeem broken people through broken people to change the world. God works when our faith intersects with his faithfulness. God sometimes works through people even when their faith is weak. And in every moment, God is always sovereign and always at work. So keep pressing on. Keep pressing on. Not in the power of your own strength or your own faithfulness, but rooted in the anchor of a God whose steadfast love will never, ever, ever fail you. Love for you to come back next week as we continue to celebrate Jesus and we continue to think about a third and additional reason for hope. So let me pray. Father, thank you that your steadfast love never ends. Thank you that your faithfulness never ends. Thank you that your mercies are new every morning. Thank you that for people who have no idea where you're working or what you're doing. For people who don't even know what the next step is or the way is unclear that you are sovereign and you're in control and you haven't fallen asleep and you can be trusted and you've given to us a Holy Spirit who helps us discern what you're doing and you're good. And I pray that in a powerful way, the Holy Spirit, for people who need to be reminded of that, even today, that your Holy Spirit will drill within them the reality and the reminder of your goodness. And thank you that you never fail. And be with us today. Amen.